This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Fi Podcast. I am Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And today, we are actually going to talk about something useful. Uh, oftentimes, we blabber on about stuff like asparagus or other related nonsense, but today we're going to have good actual information. We're going to be talking about investments, including IRAs, 401ks, and more specifically, one of my favorite investment vehicles, I don't know if that's what you call it, that both Doug and I happen to have, and that's called a solo 401k. So we are going to dive deep into that. Our guest today is Sean Mullaney. Tell us who you are and what you do. I guess I just revealed half of that. So tell us what you do, Sean. Thanks so much, Carl. So I'm Sean Mullaney. I'm a financial planner based in Los Angeles, and I have a solo financial planning practice. And on the side, I'm a blogger at phytaxguy.com. And you're one of the good guys, uh, fee only and all that good stuff, right? I am fee only. I'm also advice only. We could talk about that a little later, but yes, I am fee only. Okay, awesome. I hear you have a good story for us. Yeah, so I do have a little bit of a story. So uh, I met my wife 15 years after I met my wife. So my wife and I went to undergrad together and we met each other. We remember each other. We sort of vaguely knew each other. I think one of, yeah, I know one of my roommates dated one of her roommates, but we were not at all close. We weren't friends. I wouldn't even say we were acquaintances. So we graduate college, you know, we live our lives on different coasts. I'm on the East coast. She's on the West coast. I'm on the West coast every summer. I used to volunteer at something called Camp Ronald McDonald for good times, normal camp, kids with cancer, their siblings. One summer, this is 15 years after I graduate college, they do a session for kids with Crohn's and colitis. And I volunteer for that particular session. And my wife happens to be the executive director of the local Crohn's and colitis foundation. And we meet when the kids are checking in for camp that summer. And I'm looking at her and she's looking at me and we sort of know, wait a minute, I know that person, but I don't know who that person is. I don't know how I know them. And eventually we get to talking and where do you go to church? Where do you go to the gym? And it's none of that stuff. And then we ultimately realize, hey, we're in the same class. We're in the class of 2000 at Georgetown University. And from there, we you know, got in touch and eventually started long distance dating and the rest is history. So I met my wife 15 years after I met my wife. That's pretty cool. And where did you say you were each located at the time? So at the time I was living in Arlington, Virginia, right outside Washington, DC. I would, you know, every summer I would fly out to Camp Ronald McDonald to volunteer for a little over a week. And it was sort of like a, a it's a volunteer vacation, sort of get away from your life, you know, for a week and be outdoors and all that good stuff. And she's where we live now. She grew up in the West Valley of Los Angeles and has been here ever since, other than college. And so we started long distance dating back in 2017. And ultimately I made the move out here and we got married in 2018. Okay. What is the West Valley of Los Angeles? 
So this, if you think about Los Angeles, um, Los Angeles is huge. And so um, the San Fernando Valley is sort of, if you, you fly into LAX, take the 405 North, take the 101 West, and you're ultimately in this valley, um, the San Fernando Valley, and I'm in the western part of that valley. So sometimes referred to as the West Valley. So you'll see us, if you're ever watching The Office, a lot of the driving scenes are sort of around where I live. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're part of LA, but not the LA that you usually see on TV. We're not the Hollywood, we're not the glitz and the glamor, but when they need driving scenes and some of the foundational scenes, they'll film them up here in the Valley. God, I had no idea. I've seen the office and I guess I've been deceived this whole time. I thought it took place like in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I know what seeds you're talking about, the driving seeds. So yeah, all that time I thought that was East coast. So yeah. Huh. So if you like watch more. TV shows, yeah, if you watch TV shows enough, like Gilmore Girls, for example, which was in Stars Hollow, Connecticut, look in the background. There are mountains all the time, right? Those are California mountains. Um, same with the office. You don't see the mountains too often. Sometimes you'll see the street signs, the blue street signs. That's a dead giveaway. They're in LA, not in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh, man. It's like kind of ruining the office for me, but I guess that's the real world. You know? yeah. Doug, <laughs> everything I know is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> and aside from, I guess, TV trivia, you know a couple things about retirement accounts, which is the topic of today. Yeah, let's get into it. We are going to eventually hone in on solo 401ks, which are... I think a semi-obscure thing. I've got a story to tell about that. But before we get into that specifically, let's talk about uh, just IRAs, Roth IRAs, 401ks, Roth 401ks, and what the difference is between all of those. I know I gave you a lot to chew on there. So, Sean, start yeah. wherever you would like to. Yeah. So when I look at IRAs versus 401ks, I look at two dimensions, right? The first dimension is individual versus employer. Right. So if you think about an IRA or a Roth IRA, it's a retirement account tied to an individual. All you need for a Roth IRA or an IRA is a pulse. Right. You can have one job, two jobs, four jobs. As long as you have earned income and a pulse, you can contribute to a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. So the, those are individual accounts. Contrast that to our employer accounts, things like 401ks, Roth 401ks. Those are with one and only one employer, right? So you have to make money from an employer. It could be yourself. It could be, you know, the federal government. It, well, they have a TSP, but same thing as a 401k. It could be large corporation, small corporation, whatever it is. You need an employer and you need to make money at that employer to contribute to that particular 401k or Roth 401k. Right. That's the first dimension, you know, whether individual versus employer. Right. The second dimension is this traditional versus Roth dimension. And I think some of the viewers, maybe most of the viewers are probably familiar with this. There are different trade offs with a traditional IRA or 401k, especially the idea is, well, I'm going to save for my retirement. And the incentive, the reward for saving for retirement is I'm going to get an upfront tax deduction. So if I put $10,000 in my employer's 401k, that is not taxed to me today. So I get a big tax benefit because I'm not paying tax on that $10,000. The money grows tax deferred. And then in my retirement, I take it out. Now I pay the tax, right? So tax benefit up front, taxable income on the back end in retirement. The hope is when I'm retired, 
I will be in a lower tax bracket. That trade-off will make sense. Then there's the flip of that, the Roth accounts, the Roth IRA, the Roth 401k. And there, what we're saying is, well, no, we're going to flip the benefit, right? So when I put money into a Roth IRA, Roth 401k, absolutely no tax benefit up front. Now it grows tax deferred and hopefully tax free. The tax benefit is on the out end, right? So when I take the money out in retirement, if I play by the rules, guess what? No taxation. So no no upfront tax benefit. So no benefit up front, but a nice benefit on the back end. And then the other thing we could talk all day about these. The other thing just to keep in mind Traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs are sort of the retirement accounts in many cases for 401ks and Roth 401ks. If you're looking at somebody who's you know 75 years old, typically, not always, but typically most of their wealth is in traditional IRAs and maybe some in Roth IRAs because what usually happens, this is sort of an ancillary function of these IRAs, is the money comes from the employer plan uh, into a IRA usually through a direct trustee to trustee transfer. The idea is when you're retired, in many cases, it makes sense to move it all over to IRAs where you're the boss, right? You contact the financial institution, you choose the investments versus your old employer, right? Um, Who might only have maybe 20 or 30 investments. Maybe you don't like them as much, just more flexible to use the IRA. So Carl, to, to give you an oversimplified lay of the land, those are sort of the three dimensions I would start with when I'm thinking about IRAs versus 401ks. Sure. Um, and we'll talk about your book a little bit later, but one of the things you go into is how to choose which one. And I'll back up a second. I, I have a friend who makes a ton of money. His job, he probably makes like $400,000 a year. And the, the thing I think he does wrong is he puts everything into Roth vehicles. Like he's got a Roth 401k at work and that's all he does. So I'm like, why do you do that? He's like, well, I think tax rates are going to go up eventually. So I want to be locked into zero taxes. And, and the other interesting thing about this character is he plans on retiring soon within like five years. So, uh, for a while I was in a, a bit of a similar situation in that I had pretty high income, but I also think taxes will probably go up. But the solution I came to for myself is to max out the 401k to reduce my tax obligations now. And then as soon as we have no income, convert that to the Roth. Uh, what do you think about all of that? So, Carl, yeah, you raised some great uh, points. And I think especially for those in the financial independence community, you bring up this great arbitrage opportunity. So what I mean by that is, you know, much like you, Carl, maybe you have these high earning years in your 30s or 40s, 50s, maybe. And then you're saying, look, I'm going to retire early. You have to think about your tax return when you retire early. Without additional planning, it's probably not going to show a whole lot of income, a little interest income, a little dividend income, maybe some cap gains. But otherwise, you're going to sort of look poor to the IRS. So why not take money in those old traditional accounts and convert them to Roths at that point? Maybe you're in the 10% or 12% bracket. So you're only going to pay 10, 10 cents on the dollar, 12 cents on the dollar, maybe 22 cents on the dollar, plus maybe some state tax. But you know when you're at work, those last dollars into the 401k are deducted at your highest marginal rate. So maybe you're at the 24% rate, the 32% rate, the 35% rate. So Carl, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But I will say, I'll offer two counters. One is just tax insurance, right? And especially for those who are going to be working for many more years, there's this idea of 
well, if I do the Roths, maybe I can obtain a little bit of tax insurance, right? I've got some insurance against future tax increases. And then the second thing, you know, I was thinking about an example, and this is an extreme example, but think about, you know, maybe you're the starting quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, and you've got a 10-year NFL career plus a 30-year broadcasting career to follow it, and maybe we have no hope for you, right? And maybe that person's going to be at the highest marginal rate their entire life. I might tell that person, just do Roths, because if you're at 37% today, that might be the best tax rate you're ever going to pay in terms of marginal taxes just do the Roth. Now, that's not most of the audience. I think for you know much of the audience, what may make sense, and look, I'm not giving individual advice, but Carl's overall point really obtained. So maybe deduct as much of that traditional IRA or traditional 401k as possible, and then maybe go back to the Roth IRA for a little bit of Roth savings. The way the tax rules work is most people who are at higher incomes don't qualify to deduct a traditional IRA contribution. So maybe do the six or seven Roth IRA, backdoor Roth, regular Roth, whatever that is, and then at work do the twenty thousand five hundred or twenty seven thousand uh, into the traditional deductible four hundred one k. And now you're sort of getting the best of both worlds, and you didn't leave any tax deductions on the table during your high earning years. That is a lot to chew on, and I'm trying to. Yeah, think. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's great information. You uh, wind me up, and I get going. You know? no, there, so there's one other thing that people will often argue with me about, and I definitely have thoughts on this, but I'd be curious to hear about your thoughts. I, I've heard people say, uh, for example, I had this argument a couple months ago, like, I, I don't want to do a Roth because I'm afraid the government is going to change the rules on me because they're going to need to raise taxes and they're going to pull the rug out from under me. How, what would you say to people who say this? And if this is too ridiculous of a question, you don't need to answer it. It's certainly not a ridiculous question. I just don't see it as that significant of a risk, meaning, you know, the elderly tend to vote in high numbers. So if they are going to enact a tax increase where income that people thought was entirely tax-free is now fully taxable, partially taxable, I think there's going to be a problem. And also I looked at some history, right? So in the 80s and the early 90s, they increased the taxes on Social Security. In fact, in 1993, it was the second tax increase on Social Security. In 1994, the Congress that did that got booted, right? 1994 was a historical election. I know there were other political issues going on, but it is telling that they increased the taxes on Social Security in 93. 94, that Congress gets booted. And since then, all the tax changes have been positive for retirees. So I think that sort of, I think the politicians learned their lesson after 93 and 94. And I, I think that would be a great way for politicians to self-retire. If they're looking to retire, <laughs> raise the taxes on Roth IRAs. I just don't see that as a significant political risk. Yeah, I, I've had the same thought. I could see them maybe making a change, but it would be going forward. I I can't see them ever doing anything retroactive. That would just be crazy. People would be up in arms. And like you said, Sean, the AARP members, those people vote. Yeah, we'll be uh, members soon. So, <laughs> yep. And that, that was one of the, not not an argument that I made, but like if there's a way to, you know, tax a pool of money, I wouldn't put it past uh, the government to, you know, at least look into it. But it's not like something that 
helped me make a decision because I'm scared of taxes in the future. That's, there's no way we could predict exactly what's going to go on. Yeah. Do you have any idea, Sean, how much money is in 401ks versus IRAs, like the total aggregate and these different investments? Yeah. So I have not looked at the numbers recently. So the Investment Company Institute has some numbers on these. What you tend to find is the most money is in traditional IRAs and traditional 401ks. That's because the Roth accounts have been around for a lot. You know, Roth IRA came in in 98, Roth 401k sometime in, in the aughts, I forget when exactly. You know, the traditional IRA goes back to 75, tr- uh, traditional 401k goes back to 78. And you got to remember, you can get those employer contributions to 401ks. Those are all traditional. So if you were to look at sort of the universe and, and most people, most people have their assets in, in the tax deferred accounts much more than in the Roth accounts. Now that's changing a little bit as younger folks get sort of more interested in the Roth accounts. But for the most part, if you're looking at the financial wealth of most Americans, you're going to see it in 401k and usually actually in traditional IRAs, because like I said earlier, the traditional IRA is sort of the retirement home for a lot of those old 401ks. People change their jobs or people retire and they say, oh, old employer 401k, let's put it into a traditional IRA. So that's where more of the money is today. Carl, when did you first open a Roth account? You know, I'm not sure. It would probably be about 10 years ago, I've definitely been contributing much more to my solo or to my 401k and my solo 401k than a Roth. And I think we have about, and just because of that time, we've had, we've got about four times as much money in the solo 401k than we do in the Roth. Okay. Gotcha. And I think I opened mine right when I got a job. So like 2004, something like that. So, I'm a few years behind. What'd you say? 98, Sean, is when the Roth um, for, or Roth IRAs came out? Roth IRA was first available in 1998. 98, yeah. gotcha. and, and Carl, what you're saying, something like four to one ratio, that's typical. I don't, you know, I'm thinking about my client base and, you know, for like those reasons I was talking about, that is fairly typical that... Um, those who are still in the workforce tend to have a whole lot more in traditional accounts than Roth accounts. You know, not always, but that's relatively typical. And mine's mine's in the same magnitude. I I'm getting a few accounts mixed up in my head because I have the taxable brokerage account. But yeah, I think yeah, four or five x something like that too. Interesting. Yeah, uh, let's get into solo 401ks. Sean, tell us what a solo 401k is. So solo 401k is a 401k, just like your large employer 401k, but it is for the self-employed. So that could be solopreneurs who report their income on a Schedule C, could be side hustlers. It could be folks who have set up a so-called S-corporation. Uh, and they work for that S corporation, get W-2 wages out of that. Um, the solo 401k is a 401k for the self-employed, and it works off the tax limits. So it, it allows for significant opportunities to get tax deductions and to build up retirement savings for the self-employed. 
Yeah, this actually played a part in my life. So I was a I was a W two employee. I did consulting for uh, a defense contractor, and the the weird thing is they were always pushing me to try to go corp to corp instead of W two, and I was always resistant to it. But I should have done it much sooner because what I hit up against is there's a rule called HCE, I think, highly compensated employee. So, so there was a rule that if you made a certain amount greater than the average employee of the company, that they, they would severely reduce how much you could contribute to your 401k. So I think I can only do like 10000 And I was just over that limit, whatever that was, but it was super annoying. And eventually I was forced to do this corp to corp route. And the first thing I did was open up a solo 401k. And I think I about quadrupled. I was able to put like 50,000 like tax mm. deferred into it. Like, oh man, I should have done this way sooner. I'm ridiculous for not considering this. I was so afraid of all the other aspects of going corp to corp, of being uh, employed by an S corp instead of uh, the W 2 income like healthcare. But yeah, I should have done it much sooner. Yeah, Carl, can I just say, you know, you're, you run up against, I mean, two issues that come up in this context. One is these highly compensated employees at certain employers have limits on how much can be deferred through the 401k. So that's a real issue. It, it tends to affect sort of smaller and midsize employers for the most part. Um, but yeah, that can absolutely be an issue when you're a W-2 worker. And then the solo 401k never has that issue. Right. That's just not an issue in a solo 401k. And then the other thing you bring up is the higher contribution limit. And where that comes in is the employer contribution. So think about you go to go to work at a W-2 job, you make one hundred thousand dollars and the employer matches dollar for dollar. The first four percent you put into the 401k. That's great. But that's only four thousand dollars. Right. You know, it's four percent, one hundred thousand salary. All right. You contribute the 4000 and they put in 4000 That's great. You go work for yourself and you make $100,000. Well, the employer contribution can go up to something like, if you're Schedule C, 18500 under the tax rules. So you're not limited by whatever your employer is willing to put in when you're self-employed. You're now the employer and you just look to the tax rules and you compute the maximum. And if you want to do the maximum, you can. So for those fearing the switch from W-2 to self-employment, look, there are plenty of hurdles and I myself went through that journey. But one of the nice benefits is you could get a whole lot more into your solo 401k through the employer contribution than you could your old W-2 401k. Before we move on, you you know, we're talking self, self-employed folks. Uh, you mentioned side hustle people as well. So I'm thinking on like the, on the low end income wise. So maybe someone does have like a full-time job and they are, let's say they're earning like a thousand dollars a month on the side. It sounds like they have to have an S corp and have like a W2. They have to show income from that organization, right? Do I have that correct? So Doug, you have some of it, right? So they have to show income but it can be on Schedule C, right? That's sort of the default. And for most side hustles, that's going to be the structure, right? So you usually wouldn't set up an S corporation for a side hustle, not impossible. But what you're going to do is you make money maybe through an LLC or your own name. It just goes on Schedule C. And then you have to pay income tax on that. You pay uh, self-employment tax on that. 
but then that forms the contribution base for potentially contributing to a solo 401k for your own side hustle. Got it. And Schedule C is what for people that don't know? So Schedule C is the form where taxpayers report the profit and loss from their own self-employment, right? So you do something in your own name or you have an LLC that most LLCs are, they call it disregarded, right? So it just goes on your Schedule C. That's the form where you say, hey, in my side hustle or my self-employment, I made, you know, this much revenue and I had these expenses. And so my net profit from my self-employment is whatever the delta is. Cool. Okay. So that's the, probably the easiest way for someone to do this is Schedule C. That's the easiest way. It's sort of the default way, right? In order to do, they call it an S corporation, you'd actually have to set up a legal entity. It could be an LLC and then you file a form. It could be a regular corporation, you file a form. And folks form corporations or LLCs for a variety of reasons. It can be for reputational reasons. It could be for limited liability reasons. Um, there are tax planning at, at aspects of this S corporation as well. So there could that could be a reason to do it. Um, it's not the easiest way to do it and sort of not the default way to do it, uh, but it absolutely can be beneficial in certain cases. Uh, but the default is, yeah, just do it in your own name, Schedule C, and you just report the income and the deductions that way to the IRS. And I feel like maybe people are in their car now and they're kind of glazing over and we'll be able to point people to some resources. Um, and, and then I was going to say, this is probably something where you may want to talk it through with someone who's done it before, maybe even a professional. <laughs> like Sean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, cause I, as we're getting into the weeds, I'm like, oh yeah, this is cool stuff. But yeah, it, I could understand people are like, what are they even talking about? We're talking tax forms and stuff. Yeah. And, so. and Sean, real quick, we'll get into what you do, but can you help people outside of California or is your practice restricted to California? Yeah. So that's a great question. So uh, I have California clients and then I have non-California clients. My firm is a registered investment advisor out here in the great state of California. And so it has limited practice privileges in other states. And this varies state to state, but the general rule is uh, my firm can work with folks uh, generally speaking, five clients in any 12-month period in most other states. Not all states, but most other states. So I do have some clients who are not based in California. Cool. Okay, so let's say I've got a business. Uh, for example, I sell real estate. I've established my own LLC. And now I want to do a solo 401k. What is the basic process for getting this set up? So to set up a solo 401k, you contact uh, a financial institution, or frankly, you probably should do some research on the internet on multiple financial institutions, right? And you see, oh, here's the individual or solo 401k that X institution offers, Y institution offers. What do I want in my solo 401k? Do I want a Roth option? Do I not want a Roth option? All these different variables. What sort of investments do they offer, right? I don't like their mutual funds. I like someone else's mutual funds, right? So do your research on your the financial institution that makes sense for you. You might want to just start where you have your own Roth IRA or traditional IRA today. And you, you contact them. They usually have an internet portal. There's going to be some adoption documents that are required. And you, you, you know fill those things out. You get them going. And it's not that complicated. It's more complicated than, say, setting up an IRA or a Roth IRA. 
but it's generally driven by the process of the particular financial institution. Um, and then you get it set up and you pick your investments, right? So you'll have, you know, they'll have a menu of investments. You have to select where you want the money to go. And then you've got a portal where you can start making your uh, contributions. You make those contributions and, and you rock and roll. Is there anything people should consider when choosing the institution to work with? Any pitfalls? Yeah, I'd say, well, I would say three things. And there's more than three things, but I'll give you three. One is fees, right? So we always want to control for costs as much as we can. So look at the fees that are associated both with having the, the actual solo 401k plan. Some of them are now free, but then also the fees on the investments, the mutual fund fees or ETF fees. That's one. Two is which options do you want? Do you want a Roth option? Do you want a traditional option? Not all providers offer the Roth option. Okay, so that's two. And then the third one's an interesting one. It has to do with other employees. So the solo 401k in a general sense is for those who work for themselves. Maybe they have their spouse working with them and that's it. That said, some plans allow for you to have part-time workers who are not part of the solo 401k. Generally speaking, those have those people have to be very part-time, under a thousand hours a year, in some cases under five, 500 hours a year. Uh, but then other so you could find a provider that lets you have some of these part-time workers. Other providers, for example, Vanguard today says no. If you have one employee who's not your spouse for one hour, you don't get to have a solo 401k with us. So you have to look at the parameters of each plan and just make sure that they fit within your operations. Cool. Um, I've got something a little bit more sophisticated called a self-directed solo 401k, and I can invest in the, – the neat thing about that is you can invest in other things with it. Uh, and with that, you wouldn't be with Fidelity or Vanguard. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yes. Yeah. So there are what I what are the IRS refers to as pre-approved plans, right? Uh, my understanding is Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, others offer them. And they're generally limited to mutual funds, those sorts of investments. There are some investors who want to do so-called self-directed plans. And usually you have to find a custodian who's willing to do that. And the advantage, if you consider an advantage, and this is your investment objectives, right? I can't tell you what your investment objectives are. Those things can invest in alternative assets, rental real estate, cryptocurrency, precious metals, these sorts of things. Um, the downside from a practical perspective is, one, the fees are going to be high, right? Because this requires a little more work, right, than a pre-approved plan. So generally speaking, the fees are going to be higher. And then second of all, or the second issue is potentially something called a prohibited transaction. And that's sort of self-dealing or um, loaning out to a family member, to your spouse, to a business partner. There are these transactions that self-directed accounts can do, but, they, but they're not allowed to under the tax rules. So you just want to be careful whenever you're doing a self-directed account that you don't have related party transactions, that you're not indirectly contributing to the account. So I'll give you an example. You own rental real estate in a self-directed account and you go fix the window yourself. 
that can be a prohibited transaction because that's a deemed contribution of your labor, which has value because you fixed the window. So you just have to be a lot more careful in terms of the rules of the road just to make sure you don't have a uh, excise tax on that or a plan disqualification. So that's part of the reason I tend to, my bias tends to be around the pre-approved plans because I sort of like this easy to follow, lower compliance um, you know, level in terms of maintaining the plan. But Carl, you're absolutely right. Self-directed plans exist and there are folks who have them and they invest in a variety of different assets. You have one, right, Carl? Yes, I do. I did it. Uh, we we are heavily invested in a private company and uh, we also did it for some real estate investments. But again, Sean, that was a big consideration because this real estate investment, I told our partners that I can invest in it, but I have to be hands off. I'm not going to, I can't really be involved in, in anything beyond that, which I kind of like because it made it completely passive for me. <laughs> but yeah, there are a lot of very specific rules. And I think uh, art, there's some stuff that are disallowed as far as investments as well. So yeah. Uh, so I, I have another question for you. Let's say I'm a W-2 employee and I've got 100000 in my 401k. I go to a corporation situation with a solo 401k. Can I roll over my W-2 401k into my solo 401k? So the answer is yes, but you want to be a little careful with that. So this happens all the time, right? So person leaves job A, they go to job B, and maybe job B is a new self-employment with a solo 401k. Um, Two things I think you just want to keep in mind. One, if you have old employer stock in the old 401k, um, there you might need to do some tax planning and rolling that old employer stock or selling it may not make sense. Um, so you just want to be careful with that. Um, that's called net unrealized appreciation. I touch on the book real quickly. Um, so you just want to maybe reach out to a professional on that. The second thing is you have a 60-day time limit to get the money from the old plan into the new plan, right? So the IRS doesn't want you to take that money out, have access to it for a year, spend it in Vegas, loan it out to friends, and then a year later, put it back into the solo 401k. So they say there's a 60-day time limit. The best way to make sure you're compliant with all that is just do a direct trustee to trustee transfer, right? So you don't even get a check and the money just goes from old 401k into new 401k. So that is that is absolutely a possibility, but you just want to be you just want to be intentional. That's the word I like to use um, when we're moving one hundred thousand dollars. If that doesn't get moved right, we could have tax on one hundred thousand dollars. That's not a good outcome, but it's absolutely possible to move from old four hundred one k into solo four hundred one k. You can still do a lot of damage in sixty days. So. <laughs> it's a lot of gambling in Vegas. Bad. You can do a lot Whatever. of damage in twenty four hours. <laughs> Okay, so the answer is yes, but a couple rules to think about. Cool. Yeah, I, I remember when I did mine, it was, uh, they were very specific, like have the check written out to the next thing, do not have it written out to you, which is a big, big no-no. And I did everything by the book. I, I had a company, but the IRS, I, I got this uh, letter in the mail saying, oh, you have taken a distribution, you didn't, I'm like, what? No, I did all this correct. And it terrified me because they're like, yeah, you owe like $36,000 in taxes. But the good news is I called the IRS. I'm like, no, I checked. I think it was box G. I'm like, I checked this off and I did everything right. And they're like, oh, 
yeah, I see that. We're sorry. We'll send you a letter. And it was all fine. So I went through a couple hours of You, you bring up a great – that's a great point because any rollover like that, generally speaking, is going to get you a 1099-R. Right. So that's the, the form the IRS uses for institutions to report retirement distributions. And Carl, you were probably in your 40s when that happened. You're like, I'm not, I didn't take this money. It just went from one account to another. Well, they issue this thing called a 1099 R and it says, yeah, you had 150,000 at old 401k and it came out and it looks like it's taxable income. You just report it on your tax return. There's one box for the gross amount that came out of the account. So it could look like a million dollars came out of the account. But then in the taxable amount, you put zero. As long as it was a good direct trustee to trustee transfer or rollover, as long as that happened, it's zero tax. But yeah, there's this big whopping number that shows up on the first page of your tax return. Like, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> am I a, a, an NFL quarterback? No, it's just that you had this reporting thing and it's all good. Just make sure you report it right. Awesome. Yeah. So. Another story for me, when I went from W-2 employment to my corp to corp, I started researching all this and I, I quickly came to the conclusion that a solo 401k was the way to go and not a SEP IRA. And you talk about this a lot in your book. I think you have a chapter devoted to it. So the interesting thing is at the time I thought I needed some tax help. So I started calling accountants and various tax professionals and and people, some of these people were, were near and dear to my friends. They're like, oh, you got to call this person. So I would run this past them. I'm like, yeah, solo 401k. They're like, oh, we really don't do that. You should just go with a SEP IRA. I'm like, really? I, I think I've read through this and I, I'm pretty sure you're wrong about this. Like I remember having CPAs give me this advice. And after I talked to a couple people who gave me this advice, it kind of became my filter. I'm going to ask this question first just to see what their response is. And I finally found someone, but I, I'm pretty sure you alluded to this in your book too. Why don't money professionals know this very basic information? And correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I'm making a, a judgment here, but. And also before you answer, please define SEP. Yes. So a SEP IRA is another self-employed retirement account, and it allows folks to take tax deductions, build up tax deferred retirement wealth. It's a good thing. Um, but it's limited in terms of its contributions, right? So I like the solo 401k because it has employee contributions and employer contributions. Um, the SEP IRA just says, well, what is the employer contribution? And that's it. There's no employee contribution. So that significantly reduces the amount you can put into a SEP versus a solo in most cases. Okay. So Carl, I agree with you that from a contribution limit perspective, depending on your numbers, the solo 401k can have twice or more in terms of contribution limits. Here, I think what you have to do is you have to go back into some tax history. Before the 2001 tax law change, so 2001, the tax law changes, and they say, oh yeah, you can do a solo 401k with employee contributions. Beforehand, you could not do employee contributions. You could only do the employer contributions. So there was no limit. There was no difference between the SEP and the solo for most purposes. And the SEP IRA is a little easier to set up. So, and the SEP also has this nice late time. You know, you can do it up to October 15th if you file extensions. So the, the, you know, essentially the go-to for most practitioners was, okay, we're preparing your tax return. It's August, September. Let's just set up a SEP IRA for last year, get a quick tax deduction, and we're done. And it's easy, no big deal, and we could set it up, you know, after year end. 2001, the law changes. 
but it ta- you know things go slowly and this is you know this is back in 2001 so it wasn't like oh on twitter everybody's talking about the solo 401k that's not how this happened so in 2001 they say okay you can do both employee and employer contributions to the solo 401k but the old practitioners were used to that SEP IRA we do it at, at you know as part of the tax return we don't have to do planning we just do it as part of the tax return and it just sort of never made its way into the practitioner world where it's like, oh, wait a minute, you can put a lot more in the solo 401k. The other issue is those advisors who are assets under management advisors, they generally don't offer a solo 401k. So there's no incentive there to say, oh, you you ought to be doing a solo because it wasn't really a manageable asset for certain financial planners. So I think it's just this sort of folks get set in their ways. The SEP IRA has been the go-to for so long. Practitioners are just like, okay, yeah, it's we're preparing your tax return. Let's go to the SEP. One of the points I make in the book is, hey, let's do some planning up front. If we can get that solo 401k established by year end, we can get the employee contribution, which can be up to $20,500, and the employer contribution in, and we're cooking with gas at that point. So, Carl, to answer your question, it's really sort of an accident of history plus for whatever reason, some folks have been set in their ways and they just love this SEP IRA, partly because you don't need to plan. One of the arguments I make is, hey, why don't we do some planning up front? It's not rocket science, but we have to be upfront about it. Let's do the planning up front, get the solo 401k established, and now we can cook with gas. Carl, what reasons did the CPAs give you for the SEP versus solo? <sighs> yeah, I'm thinking back, this was a while ago, but the first one just it seemed like this person just didn't really have knowledge of the solo and solo 401k. I don't think they have dealt with it. And to Sean's point, I think they were just ingrained into the SEP. So they had never considered it. And like Sean said, it is a little bit more laborious to set up. There's more rules around, but yeah, I think these were old timers who were ingrained in their ways and um, yeah, wouldn't even consider it. I suspect that, there's a lot more SEPs out there than solo 401ks. Very much agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that. And, you know, back to the, I can't remember if we said it explicitly for a solo 401k. So you can contribute, what is it? 20,500 as the employee. What's the employer contribution limit or the total limit or the, however it's quantified. So two limits to think about there. There's the employer limit, which is 20% of self-employed of net self-employment income, or uh, if you're W-2 at an S corporation, 25% of W-2 wages, right? So that's one limit to consider. And then there's the all additions limit, right? Which is this year is 61,000. So that's your employee contribution and your employer contribution. It's the lesser of 61000 or your actual self-employment income. So if you have a side hustle, you make $12,000, that's the limit, right? But if you're making $200,000, $300,000 through your self-employment, you can get 61000 total into that solo 401k. And if you're 50 or older, that limit hops to 67500 So these are significant potential either tax deductions. We could do some Roth on the employee side. And then that's building up in, in tax-deferred or tax-free solution to give us some real power in terms of retirement savings. It's crazy. You know, nearly 3x, it blows away a lot of the other uh, decisions you may be making. You know, it's just sheer numbers add up. Yeah. 
Cool. So I learned something about 401ks recently. This might have been last year that certain, if your plan allows for it, you can, and you're separated from your employer, you can actually take distributions penalty free at 55. Am I saying all that right, Sean? So you are correct. There is a separation from service provision at age 55. And that says if you leave the employer at, at age 55 or later, so basically this four and a half year window, 55 to 59, um, you can take penalty distribu- penalty free distributions from that employer's plan, not from an IRA. So you can't roll into an IRA like we talked about before. You blow it. Now, here's the nuance with the solo 401k. Generally speaking, to have a solo 401k, there has to be an employer. And once you retire, and retire is a little bit fuzzy in terms of, well, maybe I'm amping down, right? Um, But once you retire, you don't really have an employer anymore because you're not self-employed anymore. So the separation from service for the solo 401k, generally speaking, doesn't work. Now, that said, especially for those in the FI movement, Maybe what we do is we do some Roth conversions. There's other planning where what I've seen in the fire in the fire community is that separation from service at age 55 is usually a tool we just don't need. So it's out there in terms of if you leave an old employer, right? So what you could do, age 55, say, look, I'm going to self-employment. So I'm going to leave old employer and take penalty-free distributions from their plan. And then separately, I'll start my own self-employment and build up my own solo 401k. That could be a way around it, too. And you hit on something else. So if I cease operations, if I quit work, then my business entity closes and then the solo 401k has to close as well. It, is that correct? And if that's the case, do I have to roll it over at that point? Yeah. So. In the S-corporation context, it's a lot clearer, right? You liquidate an S-corporation, it cannot sponsor a solo 401k. In the uh, self-employed context, to my mind, it can be a little murkier because like, well, did you actually retire, right? Are you still taking some side gigs? So maybe you're not fully retired. So that could be a little more of a subjective determination. But generally speaking, once you're not working anymore, the, the account needs to be rolled to a traditional IRA, which is not a bad outcome. And like I said, I think in many cases in the FIRE movement, there's other planning techniques that can be used so that you don't really need to you know, take taxable distributions until after age 59 from your old traditional accounts, including your old solo 401k. And just to get specific, so as long as I'm thinking of myself and my solo 401k, so as long as there was some income, then the uh, S corp or entities still exist. So the solo 401k doesn't have to dissolve or roll over. Is that right? That's generally speaking, that's right. So in, a, in an S corporation, I mean, I guess you could have a, um, a constructive or theoretical liquidation of that thing. But if you're still working and there still really is a business in there for tax purposes, then generally speaking, you should be able to maintain that solo 401k. Here's the thing though, at that point, you haven't separated from service. So if you're 55 or older, you couldn't use that penalty exception. Right, um, right. So, so it's, it's yeah, there's, there's some subjective determinations. You know, one of, the, one of the points I do make in the book is, yeah, sometimes you do need some professional consultations because different fact patterns can have different, you know, different professionals can even look at them differently. There is some subjectivity in this regard. Um, but I think, you know, the way I sort of look at it is, 
with some good upfront planning, you can get yourself to a situation where you don't need to be relying on certain life rafts, right? Or you can say, look, I'm going to get to a place and I'll use maybe something like a 72T distribution. I don't know if you've talked about that with the audience, but that's a, 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 a distribution strategy where you take a consistent distribution for five years or until you reach 59 and a half and you can get around the penalty that way. That's a possibility too. Okay. That kind of rings a bell. What's that called again? 72. So it's it's called the 72T or a series of substantially equal periodic payments uh, in the tax law. And that that does apply. But what, what I try to do in my plan with financial uh, independence type minded folks is avoid that one, too. But I've seen that in the wild. So let's just say you work for one employer or self-employment. And you just do traditional 401k, and that's what it is. So you get to a point where you're 53 years old, you've got three million in 401ks, ten thousand in the bank account, and your house, and that's it. Well, what do you do, right? You're not impoverished, but if you retire, you need you're going to take have this 10% penalty. Well, what you do is you go online, maybe you work with a professional, you look up 72t payments, and there are these three different ways of calculating it. And what the IRS says is, look. If you take this payment every year for the later of five years or till you get to 59 and a half, you have to include it in taxable income, but you get out of that 10% penalty. So there are folks in that situation where it's almost all the wealth is in the uh, 401k. They look wealthy, but they'd have this huge penalty if they were to retire today. Well, 72T, generally speaking, is the answer in that case. Gotcha. And then... <laughs> It gets complicated fast. The yes, decision yes, tree in my head is <laughs> there's a lot of branches. So in my solo 401k, I could take the, and I'm going to, I'll just call it 72T for the purposes of this discussion because I forgot the other thing you said. So some earlier years than 59 and a half, I could take the um, you know scheduled distribution, avoid the penalty. It would be taxable income. Okay. So do I have that yes. part right? Absolutely. How early can you do that? So in theory, you can do a 72T <laughs> at birth. I mean, you'd have to have money in the account, but there's no there's no time limit on it. Now, the one not so good thing is you generally don't want to do a 72T but you know, that early. Because let's say you do it at age 45. Well, now you have 14 years of inflexible distributions from right. the account. We generally don't want to do that. Um, so, it, you know, it's much better if we do it later in our fifties, cause maybe we do it at age 56 and we only have five years. It's not so bad. But the other thing to think about though, is there are planning alternatives, right? If we start early, maybe we build up some taxable brokerage account, uh, accounts that we can whittle down between retirement and 59 and a half. And, or maybe we build up what I refer to as Roth basis. So old Roth contributions, uh, old Roth conversions, right? So maybe what we've done is a backdoor Roth IRA on the side. Well, guess what? That that All those amounts can be withdrawn, generally speaking, to help fund the early retirement part of early retirement. So um, there are absolutely planning alternatives in this regard. Um, it's one of those things that the, more you, the earlier you plan, the more flexible and the more tax efficient it's going to be. That said, if you're listening to this uh, podcast and you're 56 years old, you can still do planning, right? You get a lot of money in your 401k. You absolutely can still do planning, but the best planning is the earliest planning. So 
the 72T, who is that a good decision for? And, you know, you answered part of, or I was thinking yeah. the same thing. So I, we also have a lot of uh, the taxable brokerage account. So it, it fits in with what you're saying. So there is a bridge. And I was just thinking, all right, there's a, a smaller, let's say it's a smaller 401 solo 401k. And it's, uh, you know, just a portion of the total net worth. So having the, you know, the set inflexible distributions wouldn't be a, as huge of a deal because there's a lot of money elsewhere in traditional IRAs and in taxable brokerage accounts, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the 72T is never my go-to, right? Cool. I always look for another path if I can find it. Got it. The candidate for the 72T is someone when you look at their net worth, you see most of it is is in traditional retirement accounts, okay. right? That's generally speaking the candidate for the 72T. And then the, the other thing too is if you're retiring after 59 and a half, all of this is academic, right? If you're at age 59 and a half and you're like, okay, now I'm going to retire, 72T doesn't even apply, right? So it's somebody who's under 59 and a half, usually at least somewhat substantially so, two or three or four years at least. And they've got most of their net worth in the traditional retirement accounts. Not the end of the world, but yeah, you're probably going to have to deploy that 72T if you're thinking about this early retirement before 59 and a half. Got it. Okay. Thanks for indulging me there. I think other people probably got that a few minutes ago, but there's, like I said, there's so many little decisions and uh, options you could do here. So, well, what kind of mistakes do people make with solo 401ks? You see any common threads with that? Yeah. So I think some of the biggest mistakes are about contribution limits. Uh, folks just don't understand what those are. And so I think it, you need to think about, okay, what do I have in terms of my employee contribution, right? That's up to 20,500 for the employee contribution. If you're 50 or if you're under 50, 27,000, if you're over 50, um, or 50 or over, sorry. And then the employer contribution is a little muddled. The IRS actually has a really good resource. It's called Publication 560. Okay. You go to Chapter 5 of Publication 560, and they've got this worksheet. It's actually a really good worksheet. Give them credit. And it computes for you your self-employed employer contribution to a solo 401k. And it has different lines. It's a little lengthy, but it actually is a really good resource so I think that's a big mistake I see with the solo 401ks. And then another one is just not realizing the opportunity, right? So one of the things I'm real big on is you should do tax planning up front. If you're self-employed or, or often early October, like right around now is actually a great time because we understand for the first three quarters of the year, we've got our income and our expenses. We have at least some visibility into November, December income and expenses. And we have time. If we haven't set up our solo 401k yet, we can do that before December 31st. We can avoid the rush and avoid the holidays. Nobody wants to be setting up a solo 401k over Christmas, right? That's not fun. I've been there. I've done that. Let's, let, you know, I recommend, you know, hopefully you're listening to this in October. If you qualify for the solo 401k, think about it now and get it set up sooner rather than later. All right. And that was publication 560 and someone needs to help the IRS name these things because it could have been like a clickbait thing, like interested in 401ks. You won't believe the self contribution limit or something like that. In parentheses, I don't know, just brainstorming. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, the IRS website also looks like a junior high school computer project from like 10 years ago or something. Yeah, like it's that. like Vanguard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vanguard needs to up their game as well. Uh, Sean, is there anything we haven't talked about? Any really important points that we've missed about solo 401ks or, or anything else that we've discussed so far before we move on to the next part? So solo 401ks are... are they're both they're simple and they're complex. And that's part of the reason I wrote the book, right? There are some complexities there, but the big thing is they're navigable, right? So I would say to put a bow on this is, look, if you plan up front, this is very manageable and it's an opportunity to get large tax deductions and to build up significant tax advantage wealth. So that would be the big thing I'd say is, look, just plan up front. It's not about, oh, I'm going to get my tax return done. And, you know, before we file it, maybe I make a SEP IRA contribution. It's about, hey, you know what? I'm going to empower myself. I'm going to do some education and I'm going to get some tax deductions or I'm going to build up some retirement savings or a combination thereof. Awesome. Before we move on to the next section, uh, where we're going to talk about Sean's book, I would like to give away three copies of the book. And what you have to do to get a copy is go on our YouTube channel. And is it YouTube forward, youtube.com forward slash mile high fi club? I think there's a C in there, but um, if you just go to YouTube, <laughs> if you just go to YouTube and put in mile high fi podcast, we'll show up there. It's um, it's always hard to, you know, is it, is it a forward slash or is it backslash? And then there's a C in there and it's like C with cat. And so, uh, but back to YouTube. So go to the channel, then what? Yeah. Leave a comment. <laughs> if you think this book would be helpful to you. And it's a great book. I read it. It goes, I love talking about this stuff, but I admit, Sean, I don't love talking about it and the detail you go into. So if you need a really detailed explanation, that's going to be a little bit it's a livelier read than uh, section 550, chapter five of irs.gov. Uh, this book is great for you. There's so many things in the book that we we're not going to go into because it's just such a broad topic. But yeah, leave a comment on our YouTube channel. And what's our email list, Doug? It is the Mile High Fi Club. So yeah, milehighfi.club. So how do you join the Mile High Fi Club? You you go to milehighfi.club and then you enter your name and email address and they they will get it. Awesome. And and before we go on, I just want to make sure we understand very clearly for the rules. So they go to the YouTube channel and they leave a comment on this specific video, not a random video. Yes. This video. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that that's how they do it. So this video with Sean. Yes. Okay. This cool. video with Sean. Sorry, Doug. Sorry. No, Sean. no, that's okay. We just got to make it make it clear. You know, we're like giving away stuff, and it, it just uh, is it international, just U.S. Um, Canada involved. Well, I Puerto don't think Rico? it's not going to benefit international people <laughs> at all. I don't know. I, if you're living Czechoslovakia and, and really want this book, I will do it. I've sent people books in foreign countries, but yeah, it's probably it's not going to benefit you if you're in some other place. All right, three copies. Leave a comment. Sounds good. Yeah, three copies. Sorry, <laughs> boy, that was confusing. Shit, I thought that would last 10 seconds. Okay, Sean, uh, we want to learn a little about, bit about you, your practice, and the book. Tell us a little bit more about what you do in the beautiful Sunshine State. Yeah, so I am a solo financial planner. I have a financial planning practice where I do what's called advice-only financial planning. So folks don't invest through my me or my firm. I offer advice, right? So 
Um, I've been in financial planning now for a little over three and a half years. And um, I wrote the book because I've seen solo 401ks. I've seen a lot of confusion around solo 401ks. So I wanted a place where folks could have one resource where they could get education and empowerment about solo 401ks, the contribution amounts, the deadlines, how to approach it, right? The different tax issues involved, right? The tax law changed in 2017, and that actually changes some of the planning that we do for solo 401ks. So I wanted you know, to have one resource. Sometimes that one resource is for me, right? I, I like to say about solo 401ks, I'm both a pusher and a user. I myself have a solo 401k, and I hope to use my own book as a reference uh, from time to time as well. So um, that's what I got going on professionally. And I do have, I have a small YouTube channel, just Google Sean Mullaney in the YouTube search function. Uh, I also have a blog, fitaxguy.com. I sort of talk about the intersection of financial independence and tax planning on that blog. What'd you do before the financial planning work? Yeah, so I'm a career changer. So I had a career in corporate taxation. I worked for big four accounting firms. I worked for a little over three years for the Internal Revenue Service. Now, I was a lawyer back then in the international division. So I was working on matters that had to deal with the taxes of, you know, Fortune 500 type companies. So it was a relate sort of in a way it's a related field because it was sort of tax planning, but it was for corporate entities. Um, so it had, you know, I didn't go from poet to doctor. I went from corporate tax to personal finance. So they're at least somewhat related. So, you know, I was a career W-2 worker and now I'm self-employed. That's a very common fact pattern, which of course contributes to why a book on the solo 401k would be timely at this time. Yeah, that's a lot to digest. I had no idea you were an attorney for the government and you said doing foreign tax work or... So, yeah, so I, what I worked for, so I was an accounting major, did a little under four years at Big Four, went to law school, and I went to the IRS afterwards, uh, a little over three years, and I was dealing with the uh, U.S. taxes on the international operations of uh, U.S. multinational companies, right? So the corporate tax code is very complicated, and so I spent some time doing you know, regulations, cases around, hey, U.S. multinational corporation has all these foreign investments. How does that show up on their U.S. tax return, right? And that that is its own world, and that is very complicated. And then after the IRS, I went to PwC for a little over, about almost seven and a half years. And I always had this itch to sort of scratch around personal finance. I would follow, you know, Wall Street Journal, Susie Orman, um, the Choose a Fi podcast. And eventually that itch got so much that I had to scratch. So I took a risk, right? I, I left W-2 employment and you know a large employer 401k and started my own uh, financial planning practice on my own. And I've been doing that for, let's just call it three and a half years, give or take. Um, so I'm one of, you know, I think, I think that's going to be more and more common where folks are like, look, the world allows you to work for yourself you know, maybe you should take that risk and work for yourself as opposed to working for somebody else. So I have one story and then one last question for you, Sean. Actually, we have a couple more questions, but I went to the Cayman Islands on a cruise one time and I didn't know what to expect. It was just part of the cruise and I'm walking around downtown and there's banks everywhere. I'm like, what the hell is this? All these exotic banks that I've, I've never heard of. 
So I went home, I looked it up. I couldn't look it up on the cruise boat because you pay out of your ass for internet. And and what I found is, or what they said at the time was the Cayman Islands is the only place you can hide money that they won't report back to the US. So yeah, not, this is not advice. Definitely not advice. This is anti-advice. <laughs> but And I don't even know if that's true, ever was true or still true, but I thought that was a, a kind of interesting. I think it comes up in the book, The Firm as well, if you've ever mm-hmm. read that. But yeah. Yeah. Um, Sean, you, you don't have to speak to that part, but the, the, <laughs> just the, blink or something. Yeah. Can you give us a sign? <laughs> I was not high enough up to be moving the sort of mountains of money. I think Carl is thinking about, but um, anyhow, <laughs> the, the question I did want to ask you, Sean, though, on a, on a more serious note, is we have lots of early retirees that listen to this. And a lot of people who are in your field can't advise early retirees. It's still kind of an obscure concept. We're like some kind of money hippies or, or something. Uh, is this something you could potentially help people with? Like, uh, I just got an email today, actually, Doug, to our email. What's our email address? Milehighflyclub at gmail.com. Sounds right. Yeah. I, I guess we should probably know our own email address. But yeah, the guy was like, I'm 30. I really need help planning. If Is this something you can help people with, our listeners with, if they need help with it? Yeah. So my, this look, this is sort of my impression, right? So it's one man's impression, right? So take it for what it's worth. My impression is most financial planners have not thought about the fire movement. You know, I, I recently heard a podcast where they're talking about a lot of the financial planning is based on you work to age 65 and that's just sort of the parameter, right? And we're trying to get you to age 65 so you could retire there. You know, the fire movement has come up over the last decade and Financial planners are only slowly gaining awareness, right? Folks get set in their ways. We talked about that a little earlier. And because I'm a career changer, I didn't have a chance to get set in my ways in this regard, right? So, um, and there are others. There, I'm in a working, or I guess a mastermind group, you'd call it, of financial planners that have at least some focus on FIRE and FIRE principles and the financial independence movement. So there are planners like me who specifically work a lot with fire type individuals, it's slowly growing though, right? So it's one of those things I feel like it's going to be slowly growing for the next year or two. And then at some point it's going to take off and there'll be a, a ton of financial planners doing that sort of work. I just don't know when that takeoff happens. That That's my initial thought on that. Cool. All right. And uh, I guess we're going to the closing questions, Carl, just to confirm. Yeah. Got anything let, else? Yeah. Let's do it, Doug, unless you have anything else, Sean. No, I mean, it's been a great conversation. I, I'm so happy to have been on the podcast today and thanks so much for having me and happy to answer some of these uh, closing questions. Yeah, Sean, I'll say one other thing real quick before I end. I've never considered consulting a financial planner, but at this conversation with you, I like I, I enjoy doing this stuff and doing the research, but I, this is the first time I've ever considered contacting someone and that person would be you when the time comes. So thank you so much, Sean. I think you've provided a lot of great information to our listeners. Yeah. yeah and again, the, thanks so much for having me. It was some of the clearest explanations for some of these um, different vehicles, as we <laughs> mentioned earlier, and because it can get complicated and then there's all these different uh, factors, external uh, variables and stuff. So yeah, super clear. Okay. What is a perfect day? look like for you? All right. So a perfect day for me looks like I wake up in Hawaii, right? So uh, I grew up, I never went to Hawaii. I grew up on the East Coast and lived on the East Coast most of my life. Moved out here for our honeymoon. My wife, Catherine, and I went to Hawaii. 
And my wife likes to say she created a monster. Um, <laughs> I was like, all right, we're coming back to Hawaii, right? So my, my vote is always to go to Hawaii. Within Hawaii, I'd say, I like the resorts, right? And you get up and then at some point you do one of those um, trips where you get on a boat and they got some food and you, you go out and you do some snorkeling, right? I love snorkeling in Hawaii. So I think a perfect day for me is probably going to have Hawaii. It's going to have maybe a cruise out to do some snorkeling and then maybe a steak dinner. So that's, that's probably, that, that's sort of the contours of a perfect day for me. Awesome. That sounds really good. I'd like to join you on your perfect day, although it would probably be less than perfect if I showed up, but <laughs> <laughs> it'd be great to have you, Carl. <laughs> Hawaii is magical. Okay. Uh, one last time, where can people find you? So folks can find me at my financial planning firm, MulaneyFinancial.com or at my blog, FiTaxGuy.com. Those are the two probably best resources to reach out uh, and uh, get in touch with me and see some of my content. Okay, we'll have those in the show notes. And what's the name of the book? Where should people uh, check that out? Yeah, so the book is Solo 401k, The Solopreneur's Retirement Account. It launches October 4th. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It'll be some on some of the other digital outlets as well. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you could do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five, and uh, actually, we don't give high fives in in person, so the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using, and that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. When did you start shaving your head? Uh, I started shaving my head in 2014. It was actually sadly coincident with the death of my barber. Um, I'd been losing it. He'd been trimming it real low. He was a great guy. Uh, I went to him for years. He passed away suddenly of a heart attack. And this is about in 2014. And I sort of put two and two together. At that point, I was sort of ready to well, just take the trimmer and it's low maintenance. It, it just works, you know? Yeah. It's a little bit of a fi hack too, because I save time and money on it. Yeah. Yeah. I started, I'm trying to remember what year. It was probably around the same time, but I had been cutting my hair myself for a long time. So yeah, it's a great hack. And as I asked the question, I was like, oh gosh, I hope 
Sean does shave his head. It's like asking a woman if she's pregnant. You oh know? no! It's like, oh, I'm definitely wow. part of the I'm part of the bald community, as Larry David would put it. Right? <laughs> you know, um, this is right. I mean, I'm losing it. Right? And back here, I'm really losing it. So um, I, I'm not doing this just to cultivate a look. I mean, it's a part of a look now, but it's yeah. yeah I'm I'm part of the bald community. It's a lifestyle, I think. <laughs> I, I didn't know about any of this until right now. I didn't know there was a whole uh, yeah community around this. It's awesome. Do you guys have your own Facebook group and website and a meetup once a year at some beach in California? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, it's like the never nudes from uh, Arrested Development. <laughs> <laughs> no, I teleconferenced in. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deep cut. All right. I like it, Sean. 